Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast with four friends, four theologians from four different countries and three different continents where we talk neo-Calvinism, theology and culture. My name is Marinus de Jong, I'm a pastor of the Oosterparkerk in Amsterdam and assistant professor at the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute in Utrecht. Uh, with me is James Eglinton, he's a senior lecturer of Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh and not present today. Corey Brock, who is a pastor at St. Columbus Free Church in Edinburgh, and Grace Sutanto, teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. So welcome back for this episode. Um, next to James and myself, we have um, a guest on this episode. His name is uh, Johan Snell. Um, Johan Snell, um, he's, um, a, he teaches at A, the Christian University of Applied Sciences. Um, that is a, a, a university in the Netherlands, and he teaches journalism. He's a lecturer there. Um, Johan has written very recently a book on Abraham Kuyper, and that's why we have invited him here. It is his second book on Kuyper, yep. and we are going to dig into those, those books uh, in this episode. Uh, it is about Kuiper as a journalist, which is also your profession and what you teach. Um, but before we do so, why is it that you started working on Kuiper? Because I think that's kind of an unlikely romance between you and Kuiper, isn't uh, it? Not that Johan? unlikely, but it's but still uh, uh, a big surprise for me as well. Uh, it all started seven years ago when somebody simply proposed that I combine my own uh, faculty of journalism or journalism or specialist in, specialism in journalism with, with with history, which is my original education. I was trained as a historian on the Freie Universiteit of Free University in Amsterdam in the 1980s. Um, and at, and at this, this split second, I realized that it would be a, a great idea to, to investigate Kuiper on his role as a journalist. I already knew from journalism literature that Kuiper was considered in his times a, big, a great journalist, but nobody ever understood who, how he could have been because nobody knew. So in a split second, I realized that combining history, my historical interest and uh, my study with uh, Kuiper and journalism would be a great idea. And I started... Uh, researching and found far more than I ever mm. uh, thought possible. Right. Fascinating. So, and, and the question we always ask guests at our, our podcast is about neo-Calvinism. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a neo-Calvinist? Uh, I never climbed as high as that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm what, what we call Dutch Reformed, which is the, 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 the 400 years old national tradition that used to be in the past, say, the national church, ne never an official national church, but a sort of uh, national church uh, so I, I i grew up and belonged to the uh the reformed church uh that did not go uh, uh with kuiper but uh, did not side with kuiper but simply remained in the in the, yeah. in, the, in, the in the in the same church um uh but ask but like kuiper i i, I belong to the more conservative or orthodox uh, right, right. uh direction is so the difference is not that big but but sociologically speaking we are a completely different group yeah uh, yeah and 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 also in a group that's not supposed to like kuiper no we all will we all grew up with a dislike of kuiper yes exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. and did, did and did it change through your research uh very much so <laughs> right 
Uh, I did not know, know much about him. I'd read Jeroen Koch's uh, biography, the, the more or less official biography of him, of him in 2006, and yeah. even reviewed it. Uh, but that's all I knew, and that was my own uh, my whole, whole idea of Kuiper. And in my circles, my student circles and academic circles, yeah. Kuiper simply didn't play uh, hardly any role at all. Uh, right. So I, as an historian, I, was, I, I knew he was one of the great Dutchmen yeah. of all time but that was all about all i knew about him yeah yeah so could you t- tell us especially for our non-dutch um audience yeah so what was the image of kuiper that you had growing up in the in that dutch reform tradition it wasn't positive uh, no. what was kuiper like what did the tradition tell you about him uh, first of all he was absent from my upbringing and secondly he was considered slightly negative as the one who split into two the the, the reformed church the, the the big well the breakaway uh, Kuiper that was his Im- image and that's how how we grew up Kuiper was the one who split the, the, ch- the church the reformed church so the one who who didn't create Calvinism but uh, broke away from Calvinism that was the idea <laughs> yeah yeah and and just as a brief church historical background so uh, for those who are not yeah. so well aware of Dutch church history so in eighteen eighty six Kuiper split away from the national Dutch Reformed Church, of which Johan is still a part. Um, And Kuiper hoped that like all or most at least of the Orthodox faction in that church would follow him, but it didn't happen. People like- In reality, only 8% followed him. Yes. Often for very practical reasons, of course, because it meant that you left your local church, et cetera. So yeah. only eight percent, which means also a slow, uh, an absolute minority of the Orthodox or the, uh, yeah. or just uh, as well uh, his his pro- possible followers as well did not split away and did not follow him. Exactly, which was also a disappointment for Kuiper. Yeah, um, absolutely. By the way, yeah. I always call it his big uh, failure. His big failure. Yeah. yeah. So you still disagree with him on that decision to split? No, it was not really. As I, as I described in my first book, uh, it was not really his decision. He had hoped to win the battle, but he lost it. Right. Yeah. And winning the battle would mean that everyone keeping, yeah. keeping everyone inside, but yeah. but uh, forming the new uh, church. Yeah. Go, uh, go, uh, not a government, but a board. No, yeah. no, no. I, I I get it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. Um, so. I just mentioned you published two books. I think yeah. one book was two years ago. One uh, year ago. Already three. Already three. Yeah. And that book is called The Seven Levens van Abraham Kuypen. So Abraham Kuyper's Seven Lives. Um, and I'm just going to use it as a stepping stone to uh, go into the, the book about Kuyper as a journalist, which is the topic of our conversation. Um, but in that book, which I thought was really a fascinating read, and I really hope it's going to be translated at some point, because it we, really... We are, we are now busy with it, translating it for, for Lexham Press. That, that's, yeah. that's wonderful, because that book really changed my view on Kuyper. Yeah. And I've been reading Kuyper for a long time, um, read all the biographies that are out there. Yeah. Um, there's already quite a number. But it just really changed my view. So what you do is you describe in seven chapters kind of seven aspects of yeah. Kuiper, how he perceived himself, because it's from, yeah. uh, I think, a, a publication of himself. So what 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 are those seven Seven, seven lives. rules. Well, seven lives rules. or seven yeah. rules uh, that I took from a, a sort of s- small self-portrait that he uh, portrayed, that, that he wrote in 1912, 1912, when he was 75 years, around his 75th birthday. So it was more or less looking back on his life for a French biographical dictionary probably 
but I found it in his archive, the, the, the sketch of it. Um, so that these are simply seven roles. Uh, I can name them. First two private roles, and it starts, big surprise for me as well, with mountaineer or alpinist. Then a second private role, uh, uh, traveler or globetrotter. Uh, and then five public roles that we all know, but still a bit of a surprise. Uh, activist, which actually uh, is a nomad that I choose in order to describe his Calvinism, because his Calvinism is, is basically activism for him. And it's always a big surprise to learn that he was more an activist than a Calvinist. Uh, Calvinism means activism. That's, that's a first public role. Then, uh, no, I'm, 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 long, I'm wrong. First, it's speaker, orator, public speaker, then uh, scholar, then activist or Calvinist, then uh, a journalist or writer, but especially journalist. And finally, a uh, politician, or better, as everybody called him, statesman, homme d'état. Yeah? He, he was known internationally as a statesman, as the only Dutchman of his time during the last 20 years of his life. So, statesman. Statesman, yeah. yeah. And But you, you have to explain a little bit about the Calvinism activism part. because mm, Not that much. Um, but the, he, he describes, and it's the biggest part of his self-portrait of 1912, he describes his Calvinism and defines it, uh, but every point is typically cal uh, activist, uh, right. societal, uh, polit politic, uh, yeah. po politic and societal, not as you would expect uh, church politics or church, or let alone dogmatics. It's all about societal and political aims. Right, and many of our listeners, including myself, um, will think of Kuiper primarily as a theologian, yeah. but that's not in this list. Or it is, it is uh, included in his scholarship, but right. he was not only a theologian, he started for tw uh, for 15 years. He started, of course, as a preacher, but especially as a, as a historian. Uh, people call it church history, history, but for me, church hist history is simply history. So he, for 15 years, he started as a historian, and then he became a politician, and concluded as a theologian, but he was not a theologian for all his life. He started started as a historian. Uh, yeah, yeah. And much of his theology is based on his hist historical uh, uh, research. Yeah. So not only did your book uncover the fact that Kuiper was a, saw himself as a mountaineer and indeed did that. Yeah. Every holiday all through his life, I think, or a lot for, of for six weeks every summer. Yes, six weeks was away and traveled and climbed mountains yeah, in the Alp, Alp region. He, and was Isles. A, he was a first rank uh, mountaineer. Yeah. 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 So that's really fascinating. And also, I mean, this, this self-portrait, just how far away, well, it's the theologian and the pastor, they are there, yeah, but they're not prominently there. And no. they're at least part of many other roles. Yeah. And, and maybe even they're like secondary roles rather than primary roles. For, for two reasons. One is we all knew about his role as a theologian and as a preacher. So I had no, there was no need for me to describe it once no. again. No. But the second is, is bigger and that's already implied in your question. Uh, he himself described himself completely different. Yeah. Not as primarily a theologian, uh, but more as a scholar. Uh, he was also a philosopher, of course, and yeah. a the, 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 theoretical scholar. Uh, and secondly, because he did so much things besides, he was much longer and much more uh, active as a journalist. Huh? So he spent far more time in journalism than he'd ever did in theology. Yeah, no, that's that, that's clear. And that's going to be, we're going to talk about that, about your second book. Yeah. But that's, um, yeah, and maybe to add to that. So I think he also was a 
at the Free University, he was not only a professor of theology, but also a professor of literary. Uh, he, uh, was, he was theologian and philosopher. He also did, uh, he included philosophy. Uh, yeah. And the second uh, chair was on what they call um, um, uh, language. Now, how did they call it in those times? Uh, letterkunde, I think. Yeah, letterkunde, but right? I for, forgot the translation. Well, what, what would everything, it be, James? Every, everything, yeah, what's letterkunde in English? Yeah, lit literature. Study of it includes everything, uh, it's language, etymology, yeah. but also literature and everything. Everything that has to do with language and literature. Yeah, I'm not sure if we have one English word, actually, for letterkunde that holds together linguistics and literature um, and, and uh, language. Um, that's, that's a shame, I guess. It's, a, it's an, like a deficiency of uh, the, the Anglo world in our scholarship that we don't have a single term to hold this all together. But um, yeah, that's a that's right, a but kind of Dutch Dutch language yeah. and everything that yeah. that's around that. I guess that's kind of what he what he also taught. Yeah. yeah. So, when you talk about these seven roles and the level of his achievement in each of them, um, so it makes me think of a place. I think it's in, somewhere in Pro Reggae where Kuiper says that the polymath is no more, that the Homo Universalis no longer exists. And um, yeah. I read that and think, well, if Abraham Kuyper isn't a polymath, then who on earth is? <laughs> who is? And I think, yeah. so th there's a great book that came out a couple of years ago by Peter Burke. Um, I think I've spoken about it before in the podcast yeah. called Polymath, a history from Leonardo da Vinci to Susan Sontag. And he has this really interesting historical analysis of like the, the Homo Universalis as a Renaissance era um, very early modern ideal where it was actually possible in terms of what you needed to know in all of these different areas of life that one person could have some kind of mastery of lots of different things. But then Burke says that, that, that as knowledge increased in specialization, the Homo Universalis came to be viewed with suspicion because there's so much to know about all of these areas that there's no way one person could master them all. So then things get refined down and the Homo Universalis, so the polymath gets replaced by the man of letters. And then you, you knew a lot about four or five things, but not about 10 things or 12 things. But then yep. eventually that, as you get into the 20th century, especially becomes replaced by the hyper-specialist who is an expert on one tiny yep. area, not just one field, but one very small thing within that field. Um, and I, I, I guess, you know, when Kuiper's talking about how the, the polymath is no more, he's probably thinking in the same kind of way as Peter Burke, that the 16th century man of yeah. letter, or the, the 16th century homo universalis is no more. But I think no. when you think about the seven lives or the seven roles of Kuiper um, and what this looked like for him, um, he, he's still a, a really unusual figure, I think, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, just to have these all of yeah. these different areas. So I'm curious to know what you think about Kuiper as a polymath. Um, but also, so something that's interesting in Peter Burke's book is that he discusses how there are different kinds of polymaths across history. And some people are what he calls sequential polymaths. So the people who work in one field for a couple of years, and then they move on to something else, and then a new area, and they're always, they become amazing at all of these new things. But um, they're, they're not, um, I think he calls the other group simultaneous polymaths, people who do all of these things at once. <laughs> um, 
Um, so when you think about the seven roles of Abraham Kuyper, or is Kuyper a polymath? If so, what kind of a polymath was he? Was he more of the sequential type or was he more of a, a, a simultaneous polymath? I, I described him as a simultaneous chess player, so he's far more <laughs> a simultaneous acting person uh, than a consequential. Um, but I wouldn't call him a polymath, but a man of letters. He would have described himself as a man of letters, but a unique one, because he combined it with something that men of letters never do, with, with practical politics. Uh, for at least uh, for, for, uh, for, uh, between 1894 and 1912, uh, he was first and for all a politician, and secondly, only a man of letters. Uh, after finishing his main theological uh, work, the three-volume uh, uh, encyclopedia of uh, theology, or principles of theology, I would, um, he finished them in 1894, and then he entered into politics and only left it in 1912, not really leaving, but, uh, but, but uh, confining himself to the upper house and no longer the lower house. And in between, he was prime minister, of course, for four years of the Netherlands. So he's unique in, 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 in his combining uh, all his studies and, and man of letters uh, with uh, being a pra very practical politician, would be my answer. Thanks. Yeah, so he, he also stopped being a pastor, of course. So in that yeah. sense, maybe there was... But I think he never stopped being a journalist. No. Although maybe pastor and journalist were maybe never together really, or for a couple of years. For only two years. Right, less, for less only two years. years. Yeah. yeah. And then, so first pastor and then kind of journalist and politician. No, a little longer, sorry. I, 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 I make him start journalism in 1869, which was his earliest right. journalism, uh, uh, journalist activities. Yeah, that's longer than So yeah. it was for five years. For five, five years. years, he was both a journalist and a pastor. Yeah. But like kind of like theologian, scholar, journalist, and politician that he did all of his life yeah, together. Together. Um, yeah. Like simultaneous chess play. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And including being a mountaineer also and a public speaker. A mountaineer well, for decades. For decades. Many yeah. decades. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So let's make the, the step to, to your recent book, which was also your dissertation. You defended yeah. it not so long ago at the Free University. To, to November. November 2nd, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the title of the book is um, Abram Kuyper, A Life in Journalism and an Alternative Biography. Yeah. So there was an article in Elsevier, which is a Dutch, an, a, a Dutch um, a weekly, um, this week, I think, yeah. about you, your book. Even today. It was even today, yeah. really? That recent? Yeah. Okay. So, and th there it said Kuyper was foremost a journalist. Yeah. Do, would you agree with that? Uh, in, 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 in terms of time, absolutely, because he was a journalist from over, over half a century and no, nothing else lasted over half a century with him, not even theology, uh, and, and let alone politics. Uh, so, so he was longer a journalist than he played any other role. Uh, and it also filled each of his seven days, even Sunday, a little mm -hmm. bit, uh, Sunday mornings. Uh, for over half a century, uh, which means that it's also in terms of time, it, it, it took him more uh, hours a day than any other role. Yeah. So uh, pure in, in terms of what, what, what you could uh, say volume or in terms of, mm -hmm. of time, uh, journalism was first and all the other roles were second. So next time we introduce Abraham Kuyper, we footnote him. Um, we have to say Abraham Kuyper was a journalist, 
a politician and a theologian, something no. like that. No, no, because journalism is of a different uh, is a different profession compared with theology and politics. Uh, journalism doesn't have content of itself; uh, it always serves goals. And his two big aims, his two big subjects, were of course theology and especially politics. Journalism was closely connected to his politics, and most of his journalism was directly politi political uh, in content. Right. So content-wise, uh, journalism was always filled with his real aims, which were politics and, and theology, or better said, politics and the church. Yeah, so well, one of the things that's interesting about your book, I think especially for people who haven't you know, read around the history of journalism, is that you tell that story in the background. So you, you, you get that for free by reading the book. Um, and something that I found really fascinating, that I found fascinating in the book so far is um, the way that by following Kuiper's life in journalism, you show us lots of changes in journalism um, across the 19th century and, and before. And then at the end of the book, you get into the 20th century as well. So journalism itself um, changes a lot across Kuiper's lifetime. And he has his own particular... It actually came into being in, during his lifetime. And he started exactly at the moment that yeah. journalism as a profession became uh, a distinct profession at all. So he is not only the, uh, a journalist, but he was the very first generation of journalists, not only in the Netherlands, but in all Western Europe and North America. So could you give, give us um, just a, a short um, overview of what journalism was in Abraham Kuyper's practice of it. And uh, just thinking about some of the changes as well that, that were happening in the world of journalism um, in the Netherlands, in the English-speaking world. In, well, in the English-speaking world, it's always called, with, 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 with a famous title, the invention of journalism. So what was invented in his time? Two things especially. Journalists uh, um, developed their own um sort of of articles, their own sort of uh, genre, as you call them in French, especially interviewing, but that started in the, in the US, uh, but also the reportage. Two typically journalists' um, forms that never existed before and, 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 uh, and made a difference with all the sort of uh, writing that had happened before. Before, writing had been similar to, the, to say, the uh, people working for the state or... or, 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 or uh, judicial people, but, but now journalists started their, uh, writing in their own forms and their own ways of conquering the world. Uh, and the second development that also happened during Kuiper's lifetime at the end of the 19th century was that journalists uh, associated themselves in professional organizations for the first time ever. Uh, not only nationally, for example, in Britain with the Institute of Journalism, but also internationally uh, in the 1890s, uh, uh, not only European-wide, but worldwide, especially the Western world, uh, North America and Europe, but also Australia and Japan uh, entered, and some more countries, even Egypt, etc. So there was also a development in the professionalization of journalism in his lifetime, especially in the last decades of the 19th century. And Kuiper was a, a central pivotal figure in all of these developments. And that was one of the big surprises of my uh, research, that he was not just following the, following those trends, but actually active and even starting some of these trends in the Netherlands, because he was very, very internationally oriented and therefore often one of the first or even the first journal journalist who introduced international developments in journalism in the Netherlands. Yeah, so what you, what you very well show in your book is that he had a, a, a strong international network yeah. of journalists. So he was really like 
he knew people like William Stead, yeah. uh, who was like a very famous American, uh, no British journalist, British, 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 British American, British American yeah. yeah. Um, and he, it was, it was just in Kuiper's network. They were friends. They met a couple of times. There were no friends, but Stead visited him twice at, at, in his home in the Hague. Right, yeah. exactly. And that for me was really well new and surprising. Yeah. And also in the Dutch context, it's not so that Kuiper operated in his like reformed corner kind of like where his newspaper would serve his own um his own audio of course it did that as well but he was also a co-founder of the dutch journalist society yeah his role was not that big but he was one of the the, uh, the founders of the dutch society uh, association of journalists in, yes in 1883 uh which all started in amsterdam and he was already amsterdam based at that moment and yeah and part of the amsterdam circle of journalists and then they started forming an association yeah. and he was also as a, as the national uh, chairman uh, or president of the uh, of this journalist association for, uh, from 1898 till 1901 when he became a prime minister yeah he was also the not only the the the, the chairman of the or president of the dutch national association but also uh, representing the netherlands internationally for example yes. in paris in 1900 yeah. yeah and towards the end of his life as you describe he kind of was a legendary journalist yeah. from, for for the people of his trade. So like the, the the liberals, the Catholics, the other, even the socialists, yeah, even the socialists, they yeah. all like kind of looked at Kuiper. This is the prime Dutch journalist. Yeah, he was a living legend, a living legend. Yeah. I mean yeah. that was really, and the way he he interacted with like someone like Charles Westerfan, who was a very influential yeah. liberal. Yeah. Um, Editor in chief in the they could, we 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 could we could call them friends right in some ways we almost almost uh, right yeah yeah they always fought on but they were close colleagues working closely together and sharing a lot of ideas on the development of journalism and the importance of it and its role its, its societal role etc yeah. so they shared they shared more than than what divided them yeah and I think that's maybe one of the most convincing. Um, but most of convincing that the people in his time, his colleagues, they saw him as a journalist and and, and, and the first and foremost and an eminent yeah. journalist also. Yeah. yeah, that 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 was really one of the fascinating finds yeah. in your in, in your book for me. Yeah, yeah. great. So a another yeah. find, if I may be go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, another find that I found really quite early and which was quite uh, important for me was that he also theorized, uh, wrote theoretical essays on journalism, more over 50 actually, never published or found before. I, I was the first to find them back after more than a century. Uh, some of them have been translated and introduced in volume 12 of the uh, Abraham Kuyper Collective Works and Public Theology series with Lexham Press uh, under the title of On Charity and Justice, volume 12. Ah, right. 22 of those over 50 have been published there and translated for the English-speaking uh, yeah. oh, audience, yeah. which is unique because he is the only Dutchman and uh, also internationally the only Internationally speaking, the only one I could find, but I never know. Uh, internationally, is of course the world is too big to know for sure. Mm. And that's absolutely the only Dutchman before World War One and probably World War Two as well, who ever theorized on journalism, on public opinion, on free speech. Yeah. He wrote a series of essays uh, very similar to John Stuart Mill's uh, essay on liberty, on free speech with very similar outcomes uh, in, in, in the same time, in the 1870s in his case, mm. 
but with a completely different foundation because he did yeah. not he knew Mill but didn't like him. Mill was far too individualist for of him, course, and, yeah. and, and of course. Uh, but he, but so Kuiper wrote his own on liberty uh, in a world completely devoid of any theorizing on free speech and, and things like that. And he uh, represented a very radical approach. He was absolutely radically pro-free speech and pro-liberties and pro-anything that you wouldn't expect from a reformed uh, preacher. No. He, as he was still was. And, and for him, this was uh, this was Calvinism, right? This and was for, from Calvinist principles. It was written in the very same year that he invented Calvinism, right. discovered Calvinism. Yeah. yeah. So this was, was for him the outcome of Calvinism. Yeah. And his big hero for free speech was, of course, a Calvinist, namely Milton. Milton? Milton, Milton 16th, 17th century uh, uh, yeah. uh, Calvinist, as he always called him. Yeah, uh, yeah. was his big hero, the, the, a, a, a historical example of how free speech has uh, arose, uh, uh, had arisen from uh, from uh, Calvinism. And, and, and how can you take us? I mean, this is a little. Bit, this is a theology podcast. So, yeah. how, how can you can you take our listeners to? And how does how does how do you come from Calvin from Calvinism Not from to Calvin, free speech from the Calvinists? Uh, you always. Uh, um, Make uh, he, he always apply, applies to uh, to the followers, uh, mm. uh, especially 17th century Calvinists, right. not Calvin yeah. himself, or not always himself. So in this case, it's Milton and 17th century British thinkers, represented by Milton, who uh, pleaded for free speech uh, and, and liberties for all uh, religions, except yeah. for Catholics, of course. But for Kuiper, it included Catholics, atheists, uh, Jews, anyone. So Kuiper took it further than Milton Absolutely. did. And that's what he saw as the natural uh, historical development of Calvinism, neo-Calvinism, that you had to embrace liberties for all. He, he Very early, already in 1870, he wrote liberties for all with capitals because he literally meant liberties for all at a moment that no li liberal in the Netherlands ever dared dreaming of liberties for all with capitals. Yeah, so and only yeah. socialists did so. But yeah, because the like mainstream opinion in the Netherlands then was not at all um, absolutely not free speech and 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 um, well some yeah. but mostly for liberals of course not for, not for all huh? yeah. some animals were still far more equal than other animals. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Fascinating. He was a radical uh, from the start. Not from the start. He started a conservative, an yeah, anti those things. But he, uh, as as we all know, he uh, um, got into the reformed tradition uh, while, while starting as a sort of modern theologian, probably during his study times. But he entered into in, he entered into uh, uh, orthodox reform church as a pastor in his first village based. Yeah. And at the same moment, in 1866, as he describes himself, he turned into an anti-revolutionary instead of a conservative, uh, and, and which meant for him that he became a political radical, a democrat, and one who uh, started asking for liberties for all. So he really turned uh, completely ups upside in, in the political sense as well. Yeah. It was not only uh, a religious conversion, it was a political conversion of the first order as well. And the yeah. political conversion has never been described right? and often, and often downplayed. But yeah. it was a radical conversion as well. Yeah, and then, then he became a follower of Groen van Prinser, who was then yeah, the... Yeah, but, the, but the, more... Uh, Groen was, of course, an aristocrat who was absolutely ahead of his times and, and more radical than any 
uh, yeah. aristocrat of his times. Yeah. But Kuiper, as a non-aristocrat, was far more a Democrat than Groen ever than Groen dared was, to be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think there was also a controversy between Groen and him later was on, some where he yeah. made his own, especially after Groen died, I think yeah. he took a, a different path, notably on those Probably. issues. That's yeah. exactly what people uh, always objected to, that he went further than where yeah, Groen yeah, yeah. 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 You said that he theorized about journalism, yeah. um, something nobody really did no. uh, at that time, especially. So, can you can you share a little bit his views on journalism, and maybe also? So, let me. Let, I, I I took one quote that I really liked, and it's good also um, on on this international um, uh, stage where we are right now um, to share. So, Kuiper Kuiper said this: the United States press is partisan in a way we don't know here. And what is even more sad, she misses autonomy from its audience. I think this quote really nicely shows how relevant uh, is what you what you describe in Kuiper's journalism and not yeah. to like just talk badly about uh, American press because this also applies very often, I think, to European journalism today. Yeah. Um, but so can you... Can you describe, so what was Kuiper's view on journalism and how does it differ, how does it relate to how journalism is viewed today? To start with his uh, ideal or his view, uh, in his times he was rather uh, content with Dutch journalism. And that's the reason why he could also chair them and be colleagues with them, even if they differed completely in terms of worldview and political ideas. Uh, but he, he absolutely... Um, um, uh, found their uh, professional uh, uh, ways of journalism acceptable and even good. And what was good to him, it meant independent, uh, driven by ideas, by or even by ideals or principles. Uh, and he saw the same happening in, in liberal press, in liberal press and even in the socialist press, though the socialist press was extremely uh, anti and, uh, and agitating. Uh, agitate, uh, yeah, agitating. But he more or less uh, accepted the press as it was and saw, found it better than most international press that he knew a lot about because he was often uh, abroad and always read newspapers in his uh, hotels in the, in the lobbies. Uh, so he knew the European press and even the American press during his visits quite well. And he was very com confident that the Dutch press was better in, in, because it was from a more international, from a small, independent, uh, neutral country and uh, did its best to be more professional than the often uh, more partisan uh, press abroad, so for example, in Britain. Or, or orange press rather than yellow press. Right? Yeah, that was one of his uh, sound bites when he was a prime minister and had to do a speech and then he uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, he uh, talked about orange press which was better in his eyes than yellow yeah. press and yellow meaning a more like yellow audience press oriented was the, the word of those days of yeah. the american sensational press yes yeah. yeah yeah so so for kuiper what was the difference between a partisan um newspaper and a newspaper that operates with a lot of awareness about the worldview that guides yeah. it so <laughs> it's a good one you know, an explicitly christian newspaper yeah, yeah. The, let's say like a worldview-based newspaper and a partisan newspaper. What's the difference? Or was the difference? Partisan is the thing that he encountered in the U.S. during his visit when he was, after, after a while, uh, often confronted by reporters. 
And one of the things he observed first was that they were never interested in his views, but only in the things that they, they were interested in, namely uh, American politics, either pro-Republican or pro-Democrat, or American expansion or imperialism. And, uh, and, be, and because he often uh, uh, was negative about it, they never wrote down what he said. So he, he encountered partisan press in, in the States and he concluded that it was useless because it, didn't, it simply didn't write down what he, what he answered, but only the, the, the things they wanted to hear and, and make sensational news of it. Um, and partisan for him was something completely different from the organic press or the press representing principles that he was standing for because representing principles meaning that you always confronted your principles with other ones and did it in a sort of open uh, debate and were very open about your worldview and your principles but accepted those of others as well and did not do away with them as the American press did or uh, get sensational with it but but fighting an open fight with open uh, uh Open, yeah, call it principles. Uh, so to go back to your first question. Um, well, m m maybe just before I go into that one, a yeah. little bit deeper into to Kuiper's view. So if if I get you well, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, is that you say it's not partisan journalism, but more involved. Yeah, that's the difference. Uh, involved. So it, it's, of course, also connected to what we have discussed here very often when we talk about worldview. Um, on this podcast is that that one of the prime, I think, emphases of neo-Calvinism is that everyone has a worldview, yep. right? And Kuiper applied that to journalism saying yep. there is no neutral journalism. Absolutely not. Um, yep. So even if there is this newspaper who claims to be just like a news and fact giving um, newspaper or website, which you had in his time as well, yep. um, News van den Dag, I think, was the Dutch version of that and in the United States are different ones. Um, who claimed we just present news. And Kuiper yeah. would say, no, 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 you don't. Even in the selection of the material and the way you present it, you are not neutral. That's exactly what he described in four essays in, 19, in 1895 right. on, um, on journalism specifically. And then he starts with, uh, with arguing or even analyzing that, that simply uh, sampling the news and sampling data is always, is never a neutral thing, but something that really implies worldview uh, your, sorry, your very first thing you do every uh, in your daily work as a journalist implies your worldview yeah. and, and the choices you make. And that's what. But he he starts from practice. You wouldn't. You, perhaps one one would expect that Kuiper would start from principles or from ideas. Mm. No, he, he really starts from 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 the daily practice of journalists and 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 climbs from there. So he really described journalism as it is, as it works every day, as a, as, as a uh, handcraft almost. Yeah, yeah. And and develops his ideas from him. That's all, from there. And that's also interesting that he really starts from practice. And interesting. Not, yeah. Not, not starts into from theory. Yeah, I think that that's how he often writes. Also yeah. in a theological. I mean, yeah. if you read Common Grace, for example, yeah. there's so many observations in that, yeah. and he's just very inductive. Yeah. Um, often in in the way he the, he he does theology as well. So yeah. It's, it's also good to see how Kuiper as a journalist is really a reflection or of Kuiper as a theologian. I mean, these are very similar, um, very similar emphases. Um, but then maybe, and, and then I come to my, the question I just asked. So um, it's still 
So you, you say involved journalism is different from partisan yeah. journalism, right? This, these are exactly the terms that I use within that uh, in the conclusion. Or yes, the, yeah, that, that's yeah. yeah I just and to describe his his type of journalism as an early form of involved journalism. Yeah, uh, perhaps the earliest form of it at all, uh, as as opposed to the later school of objective objective journalism. Yeah. Um, but involved is a term that he would use as well, uh, or he used it in, in different shapes. Like he would say betrokken, right? Dutch in, in word. Dutch it is betrokken, yeah. but in English involved. Not, not so much engaged, but in, involved. Involved better is better, term. right. Yeah. yeah, but maybe, maybe I guess the question would be, especially if you know Kuiper's biography, is, um, and, and I can, uh, what I have in front of me here is a, is a, is a um, um, one of the, what's the word? And cartoons? A cartoon, yeah, sorry. Yeah. A cartoon, you have the printed in your book. And one cartoon is um, by uh, Albert Hahn, 1909, where you see two Kuipers on one, on one cartoon. And so there's Kuiper with a letter, um, bringing a letter to the editor-in-chief Kuiper. So Kuiper the politician uh, submits like an op-ed article to Kuiper the editor-in-chief, which yeah. he then published. And this, this, is, this happened uh, it, it literally happened quite often. Quite often that yeah. he he would publish something by a politician. I think. Well, what what Han does here is cartooning this shows a little bit of the tension I think he was in and how close also involved journalism and partisan journalism absolutely, was also absolutely. for Kuiper at times. Absolutely, and he uh, went over the line quite often. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, mostly so in, in in the phenomenon that I described specifically, he would often write about Dr. Kuiper yeah. himself. Yeah. So he would uh, write about the, the public appearances of Dr. Kuiper as a politician or in, in one of the other roles as an anonymous writer in his own newspaper. Yeah. Because everything in his times in, in Dutch pub, uh, journalism specifically was anonymous, yeah. uh, almost uh, very little was uh, signed. So people were working for a newspaper and were considered uh, the voice of the newspaper and worked anonymously. He, yeah, ju he did the same. Just as the Economist still does today. I think exactly. one of the rare yeah. examples good, of that today. That you mentioned that yeah. one because yeah. nowadays it's quite unusual, uh, 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 uncommon. But, uh, to do, it, it yeah. was very common in his days. So he did the same. Everything was anonymous, which means that it's very hard to find out what is his and what is somebody else's. Yeah. But what he did, uh, hundreds, thousands of times, I guess, uh, was writing about Dr. Kuiper yeah. himself. Talking about himself in third, third person. For, uh, yeah. Sort of split split between two yeah. uh, roles. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Almost. Uh, so one way we could look at that is that it's a kind of breakdown of sphere sovereignty <laughs> within the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. And then he starts to look quite un-Kuiperian. But so when I read this in the conclusion of the book, I actually, maybe I've just been thinking about Kierkegaard too much lately, but it, it did make me think of a very Kierkegaardian mm. way of having like a, like an, a, like an outward facing monologue where you create a bunch of different characters yeah. and Kierkegaard is all yeah, of yeah, them, yeah. but he's making them interact with each yeah. other. So maybe he, uh, I, I don't know, instead of sheer sovereignty, maybe it's a, um, it's a kind of Kierkegaardian thing <laughs> that he has going on. I never read the name of Kierkegaard, or Kierkegaard in Kuiper. I don't know whether he was aware of him or not. But I think other specialists will know better, but I don't know. But it is Kierkegaardian in a sense. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And he was, in, in many respects, he was Kierkegaardian. He, he had a sort of multi-perspective multi approach of reality like Kierkegaard. 
and a, a deep appreciation of individual subjectivity yeah. Yeah. and that that really plays a big part in how he thinks about journalism as well the, the pluriformity of it the freedom of the press yeah yeah maybe it's good to, to talk a little bit about that as well um Johan, because you also emphasize in your book that pluralism is is very is essential to Kuiper's project, yeah. right? Can can you can you talk talk about what you mean by that? How you mm, to start with? I'm not a specialist on that. Philosophers are. I never am, um, so I never know exactly what pluralism means. Uh, and I think I guess actually in the end nobody knows because what is pluralism in the end is always a sort of you always have a sort of conviction over mm. everything else. But pluralism to Kuiper meant that he uh, regarded other uh, princi especially principles, principles was his keyword, as uh, valid as well, uh, and as a, a, not so much acceptable, but valid and leg or legitimate. I, I, I would say legi legitimate. legitimate yeah, so he yeah. was a pluralist in accepting other worldviews as leg legitimate uh, partners in the public debate. That and that was very dear to him. Uh, that in the public debate, you 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 uh, fought with open means, uh, with journalism, uh, with public opinions, uh, because you accepted each other's rights and liberties on an equal field in a sort of open field. It was a meeting in an open field of people with le legitimate uh, different views. Yeah. 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 So and, he, and journalism and public opinion were all about that, and that, and that is all founded on this, on this major principle, which is the, the ind individual conscience, yeah. So conscience was his keyword. Every human being is endowed with 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 a, with a conscience. And the conscience is the, is the, the the meeting ground of humans with God. Say, and there's no human who can ever infer uh, in in another one's conscience. So the conscience is always completely free, and principles and ideas and different opinions are always found founded on on consciences. Yeah, uh, something you will never. Uh, in, uh, uh, be able to uh, to overcome. Yeah, where does Kuiper grind that theologically? Um, the, the primacy of having to live in good conscience with yourself. Yeah, uh, or where he does, or, or whether. Yeah, so where? What's the theological source that he's drawing on? He never does so. To, I, I agree that it's a really important yeah. thing for Kuiper. I think that it's it's there foundationally in sphere sovereignty yeah. as well. That the reason for yeah. sphere sovereignty as a system is the freedom of the individual. And for your conscience not Sphere to be forced by someone else's conscience. Sphere sovereignty is absolutely the outcome of very, the very much same idea. There's no sovereignty between you and God, say. Uh, so sovereignty is always, of course, founded on God or, is, or is, uh, even God's. Uh, every sovereignty is God's sovereignty. Uh, so it's the very same idea, but I don't know whether he ever described it in theological terms. I, I simply don't know because I don't know his theology as well as his other writings. Yeah, it would be. But I, it, I guess your readers will all know, but I don't. Yeah, well, it's, I skipped it's, it all. It, it is kind of new, right? It's not. I mean, this is something you wouldn't. You, this, this, you will find less of this, I think, in in reformed scholastics and in Calvin himself. Yeah, uh, mm. that would be my guess, yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it I, it's yeah. a good one. Where, where did he get his idea on conscience from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, uh, to me, it sounds. I mean, it sounds like in some ways quite like Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Possibly, um, yeah. That you are the like most most intimately, you are the judge of how you've lived your life, and that you have to live with yourself. Um, so therefore, no, nobody should. Yeah, there's a Kant Kantian side to Kuiper that I yeah. described in my first Indeed book. Indeed, you do. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. 
Good. It could be, could be. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it must have been somewhere in his studies in Leiden, I guess, but I don't know where. So I have, I have a question so on a slightly different topic. Just because you've done so much work on Kuiper's journalism and his output as a journalist is almost unimaginable. Yeah. Tens of thousands of articles well, across I his guess lifetime. Um, not tens of thousands. That was my mistake. I, I counted again because it's very hard to count. It's all anonymous and you really don't know. But my wild guess is that there are a little bit over 5,000 articles in, in his newspaper and some six or 7,000 in uh, the Herautis uh, weekly. Uh, and besides that, uh, about 17,000 so-called asterisms, uh, three stars asterisms, which are pointed uh, commentaries, daily commentaries in, on the front page of his newspaper. That's, that's my yeah. count so yeah. far. Yeah, so if we think of, of Kuiper's publications and the places where he theologizes, um, we could think of books that he wrote, um, the lectures on Calvinism, the encyclopedia, and, and lots and lots of smaller books as well. But there's a big chunk of his corpus, which is all there in newspaper articles. And there's also, I mean, you show that there's overlap between the two. Uh, in his culture, it was normal to use um, newspaper columns to develop things that then became books. So there is overlap there. But for people who want to try and understand Kuiper as a thinker and as a theologian, who who never consider Kuiper and his journalism, let's say they only think about his devotional material or things that end up as books. Um, what What's the most important stuff that's lost in how we need to understand Kuiper if, if we take away the journalism? If we take his journalism out, journalistic output uh, on its own, you mean? Yeah, yeah. If, you, if we take it away from what people are aware yeah. of, if it's just not in our field of vision for Kuiper, what's Well, what's there's still a, a lot of hidden treasure that even I didn't discover because it's simply too much. And, and as I said, uh, one of the hardest things is that you never know what's his and what's some, uh, by, written by some of his colleagues. Uh, though I developed quite a strong uh, idea and a, a, a strong uh, sense of feeling what what was his and his, but there's there's and there's also no digital means because of the OCR, which is corrupt, and so you can never analyze it digitally uh, un until we, we we all scan them again. Those newspapers, um, but but there is still a lot of hidden treasures in his newspaper articles, and a few of the treasures that I found were on public opinion, free speech. Uh, conscience and, and things like that. Theoretical essays simply uh, uh, published on, on the front page of his newspaper some day, uh, some day in some week somewhere in the 19th century. Um, but there's much more that we never read. Uh, I, I think, I, I guess, I read a couple of thousand articles, but not all of them. Uh, and there's much that I couldn't describe. Um, and there's also much that I'm not sure is his or probably or possibly written by one of his colleagues. So for anyone interested in Kuiper, there's still a lot to, to discover in his newspaper articles. Though uh, uh, he, he wrote over 200 books, 220 or so brochures and books, and over 60 of them were first published in his newspaper or in his uh, weekly. Um, so part of it we already know, because it was re published, uh, published under his name, this time no longer anonymous, but uh, under his name as a brochure or a book. Yeah, so co Common Grace, for example. Common Grace is a good um, example. But, uh, and yeah. also, um, Pro Regano. Pro Regano. 
I'm mm-hmm. not sure, <laughs> to be honest. That's you're always theolog- uh, theologians. You always uh, make it make me think harder. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, um, um, but yeah, I, I think got, Pro Rega too. Pro Rega probably yeah, as well. But, and then I not, think the, the anti-revolutionary. No, no that, that one not. That well, one not. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. most of his book he wrote, apart from his journalistic uh, production. Yeah, yeah. But I think what James is also referring to is so if we don't, if we forget, he's a journalist. What do we miss in Kuiper? Um, his daily business, uh, his main business, yeah. But also his approach, uh, his approach, because he he approached everything first as a journalist. He started writing and thinking about it as a journalist, and then yeah. published or republished it as a theologian or as a, especially as a, as a politician. Yeah. For example, in politics, we know a lot about his po- polit- political role because we have his collected uh, speeches in in the Lauer House and have his collected speeches as a prime minister, etc. So we already knew them. But what we never knew is that he always had always introduced them with some principled articles months before uh, uh, in his, simply in his newspaper. Uh, and that's something we never saw before, and, and people, uh, even many of the researchers or biographers, all, uh, always missed until yeah. now. And for a simple reason, of course, because only because they are now digitized, uh, we can start reading them. Yeah, they're uh, all very accessible uh, yeah. on, but, online but, now for everyone. Yeah, yeah but not, not so long, long only yeah. since a couple of years. No, exactly, and that yeah. makes it much more accessible. Yeah, yeah. So um, maybe my means of rounding off our discussion, uh, or maybe you have another question, James. Oh, yeah, I have one brief sure, question. Um, something that that I think a lot of people who who are have some awareness of Kuiper in the English speaking world think about is with journalism that Kuiper used Sundays to to write for newspapers instead of going to church. <laughs> And um, later in his life anyway, and you mentioned that in, in the book, that he would send his family off to church and they needed to be there, but he would use that time to write a column. And um, I, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. I mean, uh, Kuiper's own life example, uh, his example of work-life balance uh, isn't something to emulate, I think. Um but I wonder, I mean, did did he think that he was setting an example or actually in, in Kuiper's own self-understanding, did he think that he was just unique and exceptional? So although this isn't something to copy, he didn't think anyone would copy it. Um, it's something that people needed because he was a one-off in how he thought about himself. Well, to start with, we, we have to correct that idea. He didn't never write a column or an article on Sunday mornings. He only, he only wrote wherever he was, uh, traveling or mountaineering or wherever, a devotional, a so-called meditation. So it was very, uh, which are very intimate and, and a very special literature. So he did a sort of devotion, devo- a private devotion by writing a devotional or, or a meditation on Sunday mornings, wherever he was. When in 1916, he had written 2000 with, with, with a 2000th issue of his weekly, The Hit Out. He wrote a very small uh, comment on it and, and explained that he had written all those 2000 uh, devotionals himself, except for the four that had been written by his son, son Her- Herman, when he was uh, ill, uh, almost death, lying on his sick bed in Brussels in 1894, when he was ill for half a year, uh, having a, a, a lung, uh, double lung disease, and uh, he always died at that moment. So only t- four times during all those years, all those Sundays, he hadn't written a devotional, and every other Sunday he had even though 
also later in his life, he often went to church, but mostly for preaching uh, in his own churches after they were formed in 1892. Uh, and not that often as a churchgoer, and you're correct in that. Instead of going to church, he wrote his devotionals and had some sort of private time for himself. And and is it an example to follow? That was that was James' question. That's up to you. I'm not a theologian. I was, I'm just a, simply a church goer myself. But you're uh, you're, you're you're professionals. You know better. Yeah. Yeah. So I I wouldn't encourage anyone to follow um, to follow him on that point. But I, I so the question that I've heard other people ask is one about was this irresponsible of Kuiper as a, such a prominent leader to set this example, or does thinking that it was irresponsible have a wrong assumption that Kuiper thought he was an example and that people should be well, like he him. was an example. Or did Kuiper think that he was a totally unique figure and therefore nobody would, should follow his example, nobody would anyway? I, I think he never implied that people should follow him or his life uh, as a sort of uh, example. He never did. And he de- never thought of himself as being such a thing. So this, this, I know this, this discussion about his Sunday mornings exists for, I think, three decades now under neo-Calvinists. Let's talk about it. <laughs> it's very typical of Kuiper. He, he, he was a very queer person, uh, and he knew he was. Uh, he was simply his own self, uh, and he never saw himself as an example to other people. Although I find his rhythm of work, otherwise, apart from this one maybe, which as a pastor I would indeed never recommend, but um, I find that inspiring in that he would like write in the morning. Every, yeah. Nobody... Was was able to shoot the serpent, yeah. but only the the Krantenjongen of the only standard the, the, was allowed. The, the, the boy, the boy, the boy who delivered yeah. uh, the, the, the the paper, paper boy. boy, yeah. Um, and then he would the afternoon would be kind of relaxed, I think, and he would always walk two hours, always, always, every day. Um, that is great. I mean, that's just like what every every psychologist and doctor nowadays would tell you yeah. is perfect, and walk on a good pace also, and not slow yeah. walking, but. High pace, yeah, um, and and I also like the morning writing, no distraction, and then afternoon meetings, but also time for family. I think, yeah. um, maybe sometimes go to the when he was a politician, also go to the uh, the parliament, yeah. Um, but I, I found that inspiring. I haven't I haven't found a way of applying it, but I thought that that's kind of that that sounds healthy. Um, he was very healthy. He was also a sportsman. As yes, exactly. Him, he, did, uh, he, he did his exercises every morning until, yeah. uh, even, uh, until his death almost. Right. So he did his exercises. He climbed mountains for six weeks every summer. Yeah. He did everything to, to, to stay in good shape. Right. And I think he needed that too because he, yeah. he had a weak yeah. health in, in many ways. So maybe to close off, this is one question I still promised to ask and didn't do. Um, is how what would you you're also a teacher you teach journalism you yeah. I think this very morning you were teaching journalism students um, so w- w- what of Kuiper's view on journalism is does is needed to be heard today and how does he differ from what we from how how journalists view their profession nowadays there are many differences of course because it's 19th century it was the very start of the profession you know, we didn't have all those developments and ideas that we uh, discovered in the 20th century but his very idea of involved journalism is something that i try to transpose to our time and i'm now uh collecting not only writing but collecting a book on involved journalism there's very little literature on that Mm. so that's my next project i already started with a couple of months ago 
so what we try to help our students with is uh, the, the, the basically this, the similar idea Kuiper had on journalism, namely that it should be involved, that you uh, acknowledge your subjectivity, never do away with all those objective means that are very important professional ideas on journalism. Yeah. But knowing that you're a subject that, and that the people you, you, you cover are also subjects, eh? people of flesh and blood. Yeah. Uh, so be involved, be very close to your audience uh, and serving them at, uh, with, with all the means that you that you have to propose. So involved journalism is the key word. Yeah, meaning that without being partisan, it's, yeah, it's okay. just be explicit about having an opinion and yeah. having a, a certain worldview and yeah. Yeah. using to way. I have to think a little bit of the relatively new, I think it's already 10 years old, Dutch online um, news medium, which is the correspondent. Yeah. I think they, they really want that also. Absolutely. Um, and we see them as a close connection. So it's not a, just Christian idea. It no, is no. very Christian, but it's something you share with people with completely different worldviews who have the same ideas on involvement and, and responsibility yeah. and... Uh, closeness to the audience etc yeah and i think the the i think it's a, a medium like uh, a newspaper like the economist also does that i yeah. mean they start yeah. with like four or five or six leaders yeah. who are very explicitly say this is the opinion of this newspaper um, what it does and what it helps and that's something people very, people from very different backgrounds acknowledge is it helps you overcome um, cynicism in journalism. Yeah. Uh, much journalism always uh, turned into cynicism, and this is completely non-cynical. Right, it's interesting. Involved and connected and, yeah. and warm and interested and, and something my students all, always are, get enthusiastic for as they discover it, as soon as yeah. they discover it. Yeah, and it also helps. I mean, when I read The Economist or The Correspondent, yeah. for example, yeah. it's just, okay, yeah, this is their opinion. It's clear. And they have arguments for it. They yeah. share those arguments. Yeah. And then I, as a reader, I also feel respected as a reader because yeah. I can say, um, no, I don't agree there, or yes, I do agree. Yeah. But at least it's clear we are, yeah. we are, there's a discussion, there's yeah. a debate, there is an opinion. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say that Kuiper... Uh, made it all true. <laughs> made, uh, no, of course. Uh, yeah. But he was uh, an early form of it. And, the, and at least the, the ideas were there with yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Johan, for okay. uh, making time to um, talk about your book, Kuiper as a Journalist. Um, it was very, um, very enlightening to hear more about that. Um, and also to those who listened, thank you very much for being with us this episode. Um, Please leave a review in your podcast app that helps other listeners to find us and also tell your friends about it. We'd also love to hear back from you. So any feedback, questions, episode topics are more than welcome. You can find us on social media or send an email to graceincommonpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we'd welcome financial support. If you want to donate, check the link in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. This is Grace in Common.